And I want you to come with me, please, to Romans chapter 4. We're just going to read uh, the last verse of Romans chapter 4, which is verse 25. And can I say immediately, for those of you who are uh, doing the summary of the word for your home group on Tuesday night, uh, don't get the gist of what I'm saying because I'm going to quote a few people, so don't worry about those quotes and trying to scribble them all down. You never will be able to do that. So get the gist of what I'm trying to say. And probably most of us, if not all of us that, are, that will be there on Tuesday night will already have heard this, so don't panic, all right? This morning I want to put, you, put your thinking cap on a little bit. You say, uh-oh, don't like the sound of that. Uh, but it's good for you, isn't it? It's good to think. It's good to think about spiritual things and Christian things and scriptural things. And so let me just read this scripture uh, and then we shall continue. Verse 25, speaking about the Lord Jesus, said, Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Now, every generation of Christians has to do with spiritual hot potatoes that comes along. Some years ago, the shepherding movement was the most controversial thing within the Church of Christ around the world. Then about just over a decade ago, of course, it was the Toronto Blessing, which caused huge waves and shockwaves throughout the church around the world. The gospel of prosperity was and still is a live issue for many. The Church of England, uh, in recent years, uh, have been struggling to come to terms with women's ordination and uh, gay priests. Now, while all of these issues are often controversial and generate a lot of heat, yet the most divisive and the most destructive issues are almost always of a doctrinal nature. And particularly ones that center on the person of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And usually in every generation, and ours is no exception, there's usually it's one of these centering on Christ that creates a major storm uh, within the church. One of the biggest hot-button issues today is a doctrinal one. It's called penal substitution. Now when I say that, even though I have referred to it actually recently, but when I say that, uh, probably the majority of you are saying to yourself, what in the world is he talking about? A number of you has got a vague idea. Some of you will know exactly what I mean by that. Now, you may say, well, it's a doctrine and really it has little or no influence or anything to do with my personal Christian life. You may say, I, I, I'm not really into doctrines. I don't really know many doctrines. 
Uh, I just live my life as a Christian. And it really has have no effect on me whatsoever. Actually, you couldn't be more wrong. Because penal substitution is one of the most vital, important Christian doctrines that there is. Actually, you could not be a Christian today without penal substitution. There are many voices both outside the church and within the church that has risen up against this vital teaching in order to destroy it. It's not something that's new, by the way. It's just something that recurs in different generations of the Christian church, as do all heresies. And so, this is one of the great foundation stones of all that we believe in our faith. And some of you who watch Christian television, <coughs> excuse me, who read Christian literature and Christian books, perhaps would be the most susceptible uh, to being swayed by this wrong teaching. And one of the reasons we become susceptible to be swayed by it is because usually those who are its proponents are very skilled communicators and are quite charismatic in their deliveries and approach. And sometimes that causes us confusion. And if we don't know the truth, and if we don't know what it really means, then we'll not know if we lose what we should have. You need to be able to spot when something is wrong. Penal substitution then is simply God allowing his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins. A little bit more than that, but that's simply and basically what it is. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. And so penal substitution is simply that. Well, you may say, well, I know that. Uh, that's not a problem to me. I understand that okay. In fact, I've been brought up to believe that. I, I, I've learned that to some measure since Sunday school days. But here's the problem. Sometimes we believe things in an unthinking way. We've always heard it. And we feel, well, I know that because I've heard that. But in an unthinking way, we've never really thought it out for ourselves. We haven't fully grasped it and, and owned the truth of it for ourselves. We've heard it. I've even heard preached. But hasn't really grasped the full import of it. And so the problem is then, what if you are challenged by an alternative view? And what if the alternative view seems reasonable, rational, appropriate? What if the alternative view sounds something like what you think God is like? What you believe that God should act like? How you believe God should act like? What if the alternative view makes you start thinking what they want you to think? Because it sounds reasonable and sounds appropriate and sounds, well, that sounds like what God would do and how God would behave. Here are a few comments 
on the subject that I think will shock you, but I don't think will surprise you. So let me just read a couple of them for you. Polly Toynbee, who's a columnist in the Guardian newspaper, is also the leader of the British Humanist Society. So we know immediately where she's coming from. She's an atheist, doesn't believe in God. But here's what she says. Of all of the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. Then she sarcastically adds to that the question, did we ask him to? 1993, lesbian feminist Virginia Mullencott of the National Council of Churches said that the idea of Jesus' atonement was, and I quote, the ultimate in child abuse and a model of human child abuse that depicts God as an abusive parent. Aruna Godanderson and Dolores Williams, who at that time was a professor at Union Theological Seminary in New York State, both agreed, and here's what they said, I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses dripping blood and all that weird stuff. And that's about as close to blasphemy as you're going to get, isn't it? And as I said, while that may shock us, but knowing from whom it's coming from, it doesn't surprise us. But what does shock us and what does surprise us is when so-called evangelical born-again Christians in prominent positions also espouse something similar. That's when somebody has to stand up and say, this is wrong. Colin Green, a theologian, he suggests that penal substitution turns Christ into, and I quote, the whipping boy who appeases the wrath of God. Joel Green and Mark Baker, who both describe themselves as evangelical, say that such an understanding of the cross is built upon a picture of God as a father who is, and I quote again, emotion-laden, ever on the verge of striking out against any who disobeys every will with a rage he cannot control. That's some statement from an evangelical born-again believer. Steve Chalk, English Baptist pastor, who was the darling of ITV Morning Breakfast Show for a few years, in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, writing about John 3.16, said, and I quote, Have we come to believe that at the cross this God of love suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son? Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. So in a not so subtle way, what they're saying is that this teaching of Christ suffering on the cross for our sins is putting off many people from becoming Christians. That's the implication of what they're saying. And what they're basically saying is because we no longer live in an age where blood sacrifice uh, was the norm within religion and that people readily understood blood sacrifice, an innocent life or a guilty life, 
that we're scaring people away from the church. That's what the feeling is, that these uh, divisive doctrines, they would call them, are, are putting people off. Uh, and so, we don't really need to preach these doctrines uh, because it just scares people and they can't understand. Uh, you know, they say, well, how, how, can, how can 21st century people relate to something that's way, way back in antiquity? Surely just trying to live your best to be like Jesus, surely that's enough. See, this is basically the argument of Rob Bell. And Rob Bell has created such, such a major uproar within the church today. It's unbelievable. He is, he's a prominent Christian leader in America whose materials have influenced millions, and I mean millions of people around the world, particularly young people, because he's a very gifted, he's a very charismatic, he's a brilliant communicator, uh, very personable. And his series, the Numa series, for instance, is all around the world, and he does say many good things. Uh, but over the years, he's been introducing things into the church that's just heresy. And his recent uh, book is, uh, by the way, a previous book called Velvet Elvis. He suggests that the important thing is not doctrines such as the virgin birth and the like, but just living like Jesus lived. He argues, and I quote, thinking that certain doctrines are essential diminishes God. Such defensive confidence make God seem small and limited as if he is reliant upon them. Now, in his latest book, Love Wins, which has caused the big storm, one of the statements he makes is that hell is what you make for yourself on earth. And that because love wins, because God's love ultimately will win, then everybody, everybody, dead or alive, will eventually will not be able to resist the love of God and God's love will win and all of them will get to heaven. That's universalism. And that is rampant within the church today. You say, well, I'm just an ordinary Christian. What does that matter to me? The trouble is, if it doesn't matter to you, you're going to be deceived someday. That's what it matters. That's why it matters. You'll read something someday, you'll hear something someday, and you'll just go and believe it. And you could lose your whole faith over it. you lose your walk with God over it if you don't know the truth. So these things are very, very important, much more important than perhaps you're thinking they are. And so... All this is yet again another attempt, sometimes well-intentioned, to make the gospel more palatable, less offensive, less objectionable to the man on the street. And, and this, is, this is what they're trying to do. Well, we, we, we just want to make it, it just God loves everybody and just stick to God loves everybody and everything will be fine. Just forget about all that other stuff because they cannot understand. Anyway, God loves you. He's going to take you to heaven. So live your life. Get on with it. Enjoy that. So does this really matter? I mean, after all, do, I mean, doesn't don't all Christians believe that Jesus died on the cross? Don't all Christians believe that 
He went to the cross because He loved us. Then all Christians believe that, that He suffered horribly and terribly and brutally and shamefully on the cross. Do we all believe that? Well, they believe that too. But the major difference is they don't believe it was the Father who put Christ on the cross to suffer for your sins and my sins. They don't believe that the Father punished His Son on your behalf and on my behalf. That's the child abuse thing they talked about. That's the horrible thing that turns people away from coming to Christ and Christianity. That's what they're saying. But you see, we believe, and this is what the Scriptures teach, that Christ went onto that cross to die that horrible, agonizing, brutal, shameful death by crucifixion, which was the most wicked, devised method of murder ever invented by mankind. But that He went onto that cross, and it was punishment for our sins that put Him there. And more so that dying that bloody, brutal death in my stead, that it was God the Father who put him on the cross for you and for me. That's penal substitution. Have you got that? Is that too difficult for you to understand, or have you got that? Now, you would think that would be easy to understand, and you would say, well, why would anybody argue with that? Well, we'll come to that in a moment. See, that's the objectionable part. That's the unpalatable part. Because logically, it neither seems fair or just that God would cause His Son, who is innocent, to die for you and me who were guilty. Just look this way. It's all right. Just the child's a child, the baby's a baby. Just look this way. Just keep your mind focused on me. So it doesn't seem logical. It doesn't seem right. Sure it doesn't. And that's what it seems like to them. It just doesn't seem fair. Why should a father lay the price of the guilty upon his head of his innocent son? Why should he do that? That just doesn't seem just and fair. And in their minds what they're saying is, well, if I think that's not just and fair, surely God doesn't think it's just and fair either. That's what they think. But you see, there's absolutely nothing normal or just or fair when it comes to God dealing with sin. Nothing normal about sin as far as God's concerned. Now you see, you and I, we rarely, maybe once in a while, maybe the thought of sin in our lives or lives of others once in a while, we are aghast at it. Once in a while, there's an indignation rises up against it. But it's only once in a while. But God is continually like that because He sees the awfulness of sin. He sees the horrible nature of sin. He sees the destructive power of sin. He sees what it has done to all mankind. And God hates it with a passion. And when Jesus was on the earth, and I told you before, one of the difficulties, what made his temptation so hard in the wilderness is because of his holy, pure nature. He recoiled from sin. You and I gravitate towards it. He recoiled against it. 
And so no matter how unjust and how unpatable and how unfair the human mind may seem to think, as far as God was concerned, the only way that the penalty for sin, and there is a terrible price to be paid for the penalty of sin, the only way it could be done was God sending His Son on the cross and outpouring His holy wrath against Him who was made a sin offering for us on the cross. It's the only way it could be done. Now, if that's objectionable and offenses, so be it. Paul talked about the offense of the cross, and this is what he's talking about. And while it may offend <laughs> the minds of men out there, but it's still the heart of God, and it was God. Well, you say well, it was the Roman soldiers, and it was, uh, yeah, it was all of those, they, they were the instruments, but God was behind the whole thing. We'll show you that in a wee moment. He was behind it all, and had to be. There was no other way. That's penal substitution. That's radical grace. That's ultimate love, really. And the reason why men miss this is because they're comparing their sense of natural justice to God's justice. They're comparing their sense of the awfulness of sin to God's sense of awfulness of sin. And there's a massive gulf between the two, is there not? And while the modern man may not be able to initially see the whole idea of blood sacrifice, of an innocent life being given in place of a guilty life. You know, the whole sacrificial system of the whole of the Old Testament, all of it, is pointing to Jesus Christ. That's what it's pointing to. If you could take all of those ceremonies and all of those symbols and all of those killings of the lambs and the bullocks and the rams and the goats and all that bloodshed in the temple and in the tabernacle, if you take all of that and say, what's all of that for? What was all of that about? All of it was to show the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was to show Christ who was to come. So are we going to say we're going to do away with Christ's sacrifice? I don't think so. I don't think so. So they say, don't preach about the cross. Don't preach about the blood. Don't preach about atonement. Don't preach about the substitutionary work of Christ on Calvary. Just, just, just preach love. I mean, just say, well, God loves you and, and God wants to save you and take you to heaven. And that, that's all you need to know. And, and, and never mind all those other doctrinal things. And then whenever you do get saved, don't be bothered about that. Don't, don't weigh people down having to think about those things. It's any wonder the church is in the state that it's in today if that's the case. I want you to understand today and know in your heart that when Jesus went to that cross, that he paid the full price that had to be paid. And it was the Father who sent him to the cross. Listen to our text that we read in Romans 4.25. Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification? 
Notice that Jesus delivered up because of our offenses. That theme runs throughout the whole Bible. Isaiah 53 and 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. By His stripes we are healed. It was all for us. And it had to be for us because they were our offenses. We broke all of God's laws. We offended God. A penalty had to be paid, but we couldn't pay it. It was too great. But God made his son pay it. Who, was del who delivered him up, it says? Who delivered him up because of our offenses? Who delivered him up? Isaiah 53 and 6, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 4, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. How do they miss this? How do they explain this away? And this is the part that gets them. What they're saying is, God couldn't do that. If he did that, he wouldn't be a God of love. And what they say is, you're a father, you're a mother, would you do that with your child? No, because you love them. So how could God do that? So they're equating their sense of justice and fairness and love with God's. And they're missing it entirely. They're forgetting the terrible, terrible penalty and the terrible, terrible price that had to be paid. And no other price could be paid because the penalty was too great. Verse 10 in Isaiah 53, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Could it be any more clear than that? In the book of Romans, chapter 8, 32, Paul says, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. John said in 1 John 2, 2, that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 Peter 3, 18, Peter said, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Nothing, absolutely nothing could be clearer than that. God put his own son to grief on the cross for you and for me. Do not let Satan rob us of this truth. Let not the church lose this absolutely vital truth. Because let me tell you, it's coming under a great attack. And this is where it's coming from. You see, whenever we preach the cross, whenever you preach about the blood, whenever you preach about the sacrifice of Jesus down for our sins, you have to trust the Holy Spirit to open the hearts and the minds of those who hear that. Because logically, you'll never convince them. You have to trust the Holy Spirit. And that's what works. That's what brings us to salvation. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our understanding of these things, who causes us in our hearts to say, yes, that's right. He did that for me. It's no good saying they don't understand it. It's going to offend them. It's unpalatable. They won't like it. You have to teach it. You have to say it. And you have to trust the Holy Spirit to say in their hearts and show them how to believe it. Now listen to what it says. He was raised because of our justification. He was raised. He was resurrected 
because of our justification. Yeah, he died on the cross and he shed his blood for our justification because the Bible makes that clear. But here Paul is saying something else very specific, that he was raised, he was resurrected for our justification. Why so? Was it not enough that he went to the cross? Was it not enough he shed his blood? Was it not enough he died for our justification? Paul said he was raised for our justification. The resurrection vindicated everything Jesus did on the cross. What if Jesus hadn't rose again from the dead? How would we have known that his sacrifice was sufficient? How would we have ever known that God was pleased with his sacrifice and the price had been paid? God wanted us to know and to know forever, for all time, that it has been paid. How? By raising his son up for our justification. So that we could say, Jesus died, yes, for justification, but thank God he rose again. I have the evidence, I have the proof that Jesus rose again from the dead. I am justified because I believe in that. I believe in him. Do you understand that this morning? You see, it took the resurrection to prove that Christ's blood had atoned and to show us the evidence. You see, in Romans chapter 1, 3, and 4, Paul introduces Christ to the Roman church this way. He said, Concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, how? By the resurrection from the dead. And that's why Easter next Sunday is so vitally important date in the Christian calendar because we're reminded afresh of Christ's death on the cross on Good Friday and his rising again on Easter Sunday. And there's nothing more important and more vital than that for us to believe in. That is just the foundation of our whole Christian faith. Take that away and we have nothing. So it was God who delivered up his son to the cross to suffer the full blast of God's wrath and indignation against sin. And even when Jesus was suffering the full indignation of God's wrath against sin, even at that moment when he was suffering it, you remember what Jesus said of the seven statements from the cross? <laughs> this one here is the toughest one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how terrible and how awful and how deep the price Jesus had to pay that his own father had to turn away and allow him to suffer the full blast of his indignation and not help him. And not help him. See how important this is? See the way the enemy of our souls would want us not to believe this. Because we miss the whole point and we forget the great price that not only the son had to pay, but the father had to pay. Do you think this wasn't tough on the father? Having to give his son over to that for you and for me on the cross? Do you think that didn't break the father's heart? And yet, yet, it says in Isaiah 53, it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. How could that be? 
Does that mean, and this is where these people miss this, because they're saying, well, that makes God sadistic, and he's cruel, and he's vindictive, and all that. No, no, no. God wasn't pleased to see his son suffer. That broke the heart of God because of sin. What pleased him was, was the consequences of it, the effect of it, that you and I could come into salvation, that you and I could be saved. That's what pleased the heart of the Father. He had to suffer seeing his son suffer. That didn't please him in any way. But what pleased him, what satisfied him, was to see what that accomplished through his son. Your salvation and my salvation. This is the gospel, friends. This is the gospel. This is the glorious gospel. And the enemy hates the glorious gospel. He hates it with a passion. And he's trying to destroy it. He's trying to take it out of the church. You could watch programs for a whole month and never hear the cross ever mentioned. Never hear the blood mentioned. Because we don't want to offend. Don't want to offend anybody. Well, Paul wasn't afraid to offend anybody, was he? Because he preached it. Let me just, I'm going to close here just in a second. Here's what Paul said. See, when Paul come across these things in his day, let me tell you, the early church, <laughs> they were riddled with false teachers and false teaching just because the enemy just tried to sow the seeds of that, the tares among the wheat. Here's what Paul said to the church of Galatia who was in danger of going back under the old Judaism, the old law system. Here's what he said. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who has called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we are of an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's strong, isn't it? As we have said before, now we say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you that you have received, let him be accursed. For I do not... For I. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? If I still please men, then I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And every time, in every church, Paul raised up or visited where he saw Doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ being attacked, he was vehemently opposed to it. And in no uncircum circumstances, he just, he just was clear-cut against it. This is wrong. It's from the pit of hell. Don't have anything to do with it. Anybody's listening to me in the podcast, let me tell you, if you're in a church that's preaching against the penal substitution of Christ, get out of it. Get out of it as fast as you can because it's heresy. Now, you rarely ever hear me saying that, but this is how important this is. This is a deep heresy that's going to ruin many, many lives. Do not be caught in the web of it. Go to the Scriptures. See what Paul preaches. See what Peter and John say. See what Jesus said. Stick to that. You'll not go far wrong if you stick to that. Amen. So let's not lose sight of this glorious truth, but rather let us magnify and uphold the wonders of God's grace and salvation. Yes, He's a God of love, and yes, we magnify His love, and yes, we preach on His love continually, but not at the expense of His justice. Not at the expense 
of the justice of God that had to be satisfied. And only Jesus could do it for you and for me. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us to know what we believe. Lord, help it to be rooted deep in our hearts. That we're not blown about by every wind of doctrine. That we're not deceived by the cunningness of men. And we're not blinded to the truth by the evil one. But Lord, we know the truth of the riches of his grace. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for us, for paying that awful price, for going the whole way to Calvary, for suffering the wrath of God for our sakes, for dying a death that we should have died, but we couldn't. We couldn't pay the price. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your gospel, wonderful gospel of grace and love and mercy. Thank you. Cost us nothing. Cost him everything. That's grace. That's mercy. And so we bless you today. We thank you for your word, for the truth of it, for the power of it, for it sets us free. And it keeps us straight. It keeps our feet on the rock. And we give you glory. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen.